0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Simon Ferdinand, author of Mapping Beyond Measure, Art, Cartography, and the Space of Global Modernity, published in 2019 by the University of Nebraska Press. Dr. Ferdinand, welcome to the show. Hi, Stentor. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a Brit, uh, but I live and work in the Netherlands. Um, Professionally, I run uh, an academic editing company. um, And in September, I'm set to start uh, another postdoc in the field of this book. In terms of my scholarship, I would position myself in the so-called geohumanities. So that is a broad interdisciplinary research area that draws on research objects and concepts in the humanities and the social sciences and puts those in dialogue with uh, geography. Um, and in terms of my specific research focus, I look at different forms of visual representation in geography. So for my doctorate, that was the relationship between art and mapping, which is the subject of this book. And since then, I've been looking more at uh, visual representations of the earth as a whole, particularly in relation to the contemporary ecological crisis.
1: Okay. So let's jump right in and i'll ask you about one of the maybe more controversial things that you say in the introduction to the book uh which is that you see maps as a a modern phenomenon that don't really go back before about the 1400s or so so could you tell us you know why do you uh see maps in that way and how does this understanding of maps as a, a specifically modern phenomenon help us to understand map art which is the you know main thing that you're looking at in this book thanks for that you
2: you put your finger on the the premise of the study really that um uh there there is this fundamental modernity of map making it's an idea that i've taken up from the radical mapping theorist dennis wood who makes this argument quite powerfully in a book uh named the power of maps um And he draws the the kind of great ditch, the dividing line in the history of cartography um, provocatively early, around 1400, and um, argues that mapping, at least as we've come to understand it, has really taken off, disseminated itself um, only very recently since that time. Um, And... I mean, his argument really is going on just the number of documents that have survived from the ancient and medieval worlds, taking into account, of course, the fact that uh, many of these maps were made on documents that won't have survived into the modern era through the natural degeneration of, say, papyrus or vellum. Um, But still, the numbers are remarkably low, and the kind of document that gets called maps from the ancient world could also be put in relation to other genre of visual representation that we know today. Um, Take for example, the the codices of the Aztecs, which um, do provide something of a schematic spatial representations of certain cities in what we'd now call Middle America. But really, they contain elements of genealogies, of uh, history, um, of cosmology, and perhaps also painting. and could be put into those disciplines as well as mapping. Dennis Wood's idea really is that the concept of mapping only had to emerge around the, the incipients of the early modern era as... Uh, the rise of this kind of newly centralised modern nation-state demanded a form of visual representation that would give itself a form, a body, and could disseminate itself as a form of political community that would be accepted by the citizenry. Um, These states also had to, as Wood puts it, organise their many interests, make war, raise taxes, established global empires and all the forms of logistics and coordination that go with that. So there's this new need for maps in the modern era. And this theory that I'm drawing on, it doesn't exclude the possibility of maps before the modern era and would, as I would as well, um, points to concrete instances of maps in the, early, in the medieval and ancient worlds. But his argument is that really the question we need to be asking is um, uh, why did those limited instances of maps before the advent of modernity not flourish into this explosion of map-making traditions that followed, say, from the 16th century and remain isolated examples? His argument, of course, is that they were bound up with the rise of the state, But in my book, I suggest that they're also bound up with the emergence of the world market, of modern capitalism, of colonialism. So there is, I think, this link between maps and modernity. That's my premise. As a critic of art and someone interested in the overlaps between geography and art, I find that enabling because if maps and modernity are closely bound up with one another, then the ways in which modern and contemporary artists have engaged with maps offer a kind of very concrete formal way in which one can open up their wider perspectives on some of the great themes that go with modern history. So that was my premise and I hope that it opens up this perspective on map art that is both formal in that it's engaged with maps as documents but also expansive in that it um, brings into view this kind of broad History that goes with uh, map making.
1: Okay, well, then let's now talk about some examples of map art. So, in the major chapters of your book, rather than doing kind of a, a broad overview of all the different map art that's out there, you choose four particular pieces to do kind of deep detailed readings of uh you know one in each of your chapters so could you tell us a little bit about you know what these uh pieces are that you chose to focus on and you know why you picked out these examples uh to work with yeah
2: indeed the the book is really case study uh, driven and uh, there are as you say many great overviews of the field of map art not least Dennis Wood, but also another great one by Ruth Watson. Um, They're important, uh, but I really wanted to drill down and show specifically what some of these artists that were engaged with mapping are doing. Um, The selection of artists is diverse. I wanted to show that there are a, um, a, a global body of artists who are engaged with mapping and that diversity offers different perspectives on the history of cartography. Um, The method that I'm using in the book is cultural analysis, which really looks closely at how artworks and other forms of visual culture can feed into our theoretical accounts of various themes. So with that in mind, I tried to choose artists and artworks that really contributed something, not just aesthetically, but also to our, our theoretical understanding of map making and its history. Um, so just to give you a couple of uh, uh, signal artists from the book, I begin with um, a Soviet painter and uh, musical theorist um, named Solomon Borosovich Nikritin. Um, he was working in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s in the Soviet Union. Um, his works didn't accord with the political climate of Stalinism, so he was marginal in his time. But I found his uh, works fascinating in contemporary, in relation to contemporary spatial theory, and particularly in the first chapter of the book, I look at a painting named The Old and the New. And as that title suggests, it sets up a, um, a tension between tradition and modernity. We have two figures, um, a, a male and a, a female communist, wearing workers' overalls and striking um, uh, confident communist postures. Um, and then there's a statue of a Venus, which seems to recall antiquity, and then there is a, a, a beggar um, who has lost his legs. Um, so, those two, the, the, that cast of figures sets up a kind of tense social scene. And then, in the middle of that painting, um, one of the communist figures is holding up a cartographic globe in his hand, um, which is strikingly blank. And I produce a kind of Nietzschean reading of that. Um, image in which we can see this newly modern apprehension of geography um, as something that is not uh, imbued with uh, kind of divine order, with meaning, but is seen as blank, uh, meaningless, confronting us with the facticity and um, um, uh, blankness of the world. Um, that exists in this painting in relation to this social scene and these different figures who all react to it in different ways. So I see that as a kind of classically modernist uh, reflection on the map and how it works in the social world. Um, uh, let me track forward to uh, another artist that I talk about in the book. This in the third chapter. Um, this is a contemporary uh, Dutch artist named Huyan Kokke. Um, he takes. Um, found maps and plans from various state archives, all of which were produced or instrumentalized by different states fighting the Second World War. These maps are focused on cities, and what he does is that he conflates together, using Photoshop, hundreds of maps and plans, all of the same city, so that what you see as a viewer is this digital composite representation of, say, Berlin or Warsaw or Stalingrad, which combines the different perspectives of, say, Nazi Germany, um, the Soviet Union, various resistance movements, the Allies as they try to work out a prospective peace settlement, um, so we see the different uh, visions that these states were trying to impose on the terrain from their very different ideological perspectives in combination with all of the juttings that various foot soldiers were um, annotating the maps with as they tried to fight their way across the terrains or realise these different states' visions, um, all in one stark vision in front of you. So you get this strong sense of the way in which, in modernity, the main purpose of the map was to depict social space so that states could impose their transformative designs um, and try and realize them in social reality. And what these artworks do is um, reveal many of the contradictions um, embedded in those Uh, projected designs and extrapolate them in ways that the states in question wouldn't necessarily like to admit. Um, Another chapter, say chapter four, looks at works that were made in the 90s by a Japanese um, digital collagist named Satomi Matoba. She, um, I think in response to the kind of celebratory mood of globalization in the 90s, this idea that there had been a death of distance, that we were living in a flat world, that with information communications technologies, we could communicate with people on the far side of the globe, and that geography would no longer play a significant role in geopolitics, and that all of this would usher in a kind of new era of cosmopolitanism. What she does is literalize those ideological rhetorics uh, geographically. So by taking formerly distant places, say cities from all over the world, and collaging them all together within single maps, she tries to imagine the idea that with the annulment of geographical distance with the advent of globalization, that would usher in a kind of borderless cosmopolitan world. And she does quite interesting things with that. Um, I have the argument that the the model for the modern nation state was the geographical island. You can see this, for example, in works from the 16th century in which early utopian theorists imagined ideal island republics, such as Thomas More's Utopia. So the, the island with its cliffs provided the kind of ideal template on which the emergent model nation state was able to imagine its own uh, territorial integrity. Um, What Matoba does is to collage elements that belong to really quite different nation states um, into the space of the island and so fragment the the insular space of the nation from within. And Specifically, what she does is she she takes the Hawaiian island of Oahu, uh, the site of Pearl Harbour, which, as listeners will know, um, uh, was the the, the site of the the attack which began the Pacific War. Um, And she collages in um, the profile of Hiroshima, such that Pearl Harbour and Hiroshima occupy a single island. So you have these two sites that bookended the Pacific War and stand as symbols of um, nationalist enmity, I guess. Uh, and yet they cohere within the same island space, um, presumably peacefully. So that stands, I think, for her as a, as a, a symbol of um, a cosmopolitan statehood. So those are just three Examples of the different
1: kinds of works
2: that I look at, and a suggestion of some of the interpretations that I um, that I bring out of them.
1: Okay, that's great. Uh, so. In your book, you draw on the critical cartography literature, but you also make the argument that map art engages with cartography and kind of enacts its critiques in a different way from written theorizing about maps. So what's distinct about map art as compared to a written or verbal uh, critical uh, engagement with maps?
2: Yeah, indeed. Um, the... The key difference, I guess, is is one of media specificity in that, um, you know, creative experiments notwithstanding, a lot of what map theorists do is is write texts and um, which puts one at a certain remove from what one is talking about, whether that be physical geography or the kinds of um, visualization that we see in uh, cartographic representation. Um, And while there is a joy, at least this is what I found in my book, to trying to articulate um, in writing the kinds of visual complexity, there is always, I think, that sense of a gap where you're trying to articulate um, verbally something which um, is embodied in a quite different form So what working with uh, art enables these practitioners to do is not just kind of make um, theoretical postulations from the sidelines as it were, but rather they can inhabit the map. They can very practically and materially experiment with cartographic forms. They can themselves practice forms of mapping
0: That's shipstation.com with the code POD.
2: I think I can turn to some examples of this um, in the book. There has recently been a lot of uh, theorising about the um, the topic of cartographic temporality, maps and time. Um, and in the second chapter of my book, this is something that I address. Um, I look at collages made on rice paper by a contemporary artist who works in Portland, Maine, named Alison Hildreth. She makes these, <laughs> these very kind of Gothic cartographies. They're full of bats and spider's webs and dark, obscure forms, which is what drew me to them immediately. But their significance, I think, relates to cartography and time. And in approaching these works, I offer some concepts. I argue that in cartography, as it has been traditionally thought about and practiced, has aspired to a state of what I call monochrony. And this is the idea that as much as possible, maps should try to visualize a given terrain as it exists in a single point in time. Uh, The idea would be that maps offer you a a snapshot of geography at one particular moment. And of course, that's not true. (laughs) The data that goes into maps are collected at different moments um, and they are read over time and they're read in different contexts. So there are many different Uh, temporalities that attach to maps and forms of temporality that are uh, temporal diversity that exist within maps. Um, But we try and repress that temporal diversity as much as we possibly can. And this stands in contrast to pre-modern visual representations of geography, which often explicitly include forms of temporal diversity. And for that, I have a, the very different concept of polychrony. So think, for example, of the medieval Mappamundi. They would show, for example, you know, contemporary toponymy, the place names of medieval Europe. But we'd also see Christ being crucified. We'd also see the Emperor Augustus uh, issuing demands. We'd also see Christ at the top of the composition, standing on the Day of Judgment. So there we have the intuition of space, but we also have uh, religious histories, mythic histories, different temporal orders that interpenetrate one another. Now, what Alison Hildreth can do beyond what a mapping theorist will be able to do in this situation is that she can experiment with cartography and push it in different directions. So whereas I might be able to produce a theory of polychrony, she goes and does it. So in her cartographies, what we'll see, for example, is um, a particular kind of fortification, the Trace Italian. These are the star-shaped fortresses that were so important in early modern Europe. They might stand alongside, for example, uh, particular continental outlines as they were mapped in the 18th century that might stand alongside airfields and quite obviously mechanical forms that belong to a much more recent era. So, what we have in her maps is this unabashed, unapologetic polychrony, this temporal diversity. So, rather than having me kind of po faced academic. Standing from the sidelines and um, putting forward my theories of cartographic temporality, she goes ahead and materially, practically produces a cartographic polychrony that stands as a as a as a form of artistic map making in its own right. And I think much the same could be said for the works of Satomi Matoba, as I mentioned, and particularly in the last chapter of the book. I look at the British filmmaker um, named Peter Greenaway, look at one of his early films uh, in which I argue that whereas the cartography we know is premised centrally on the idea of representation, he imagines an entirely different formulation of map making, which is premised on the idea of performance and, and mapping creating the territory that people then walk through. So in these ways, artists are able to do mapping rather than just think about it.
1: Okay, yeah, I think you picked some really striking examples that really, uh, you know, get us thinking about these these issues from the particular artists that you chose to focus on. So I now want to ask you a bit about methodology. Uh, And you mentioned... uh, earlier that you're using a cultural analysis approach and you talk in the book about how this allows objects to speak back to you and it emphasizes not treating the meaning of the things that you're looking at as being fixed by the context in which they were uh, created so could you tell us a bit about you know how you go about doing this cultural analysis uh, methodology and what you see this as bringing to our understanding of map art.
2: Indeed. I, um, I, I did the PhD on which the book is based in the Amsterdam school of cultural analysis. So (laughs) it was in the air as I was writing the book. Um, but it was really productive. I find in that, I think the central idea of cultural analysis is that You know, we've lived for um, perhaps half a century of really quite strident critical cultural theory, whether that be Marxist uh, theorizings of literature, which would see each and every instance of cultural production, of geographical production, um, as uh, reflecting underlying economic modes. Um, Or post-structuralist theory, which would uh, look at uh, culture as reflecting various forms of difference. There are these really strong theoretical paradigms that always tend to lead one's analysis in different way. Um, Cultural analysis, far from seeking to jettison that, uh, seeks to draw on those theories... But the point would be, rather than allowing those uh, master discourses to have the last word and monopolize the significance of cultural practice and cultural production, um, as you say, there's that key phrase that the the object should speak back. In approaching um, a given research object, one must always attend to the specificities of it. And rather than simply imposing one's theoretical framework on the object, one tries to use one's critical practice in a way that would allow the object to reflect on the theory. And I found this enabling in relation to map art in that, um, of course, there is this great literature of critical cartography on which I draw in the book. But I did not want to simply apply it. I saw these uh, map artists, which, as uh, sorry, who, as you brought out in your previous question, um, they're able to think about cartography, not just kind of produced um, decorous aesthetic, refl- uh, um, uh, you know, beautiful works of art. They're. Works of map art are themselves modes of thought, they are themselves modes of practice, and what cultural analysis allows one to do as a method is to extrapolate that and show how artworks participate in theoretical discourses. So what I do in each chapter of the book, when I'm looking at the case studies, is try to put into dialogue my given work of map art or map artist with a certain body of theory. We take, for example, uh, the painting The Old and the New by Solomon Nakritin, which I mentioned before. I put that work in dialogue with um, the philosopher of space, Peter Sloterdijk. In particular, he is an existentialist uh, Nietzschean reading of the disenchanted modern globe. Um, and I show how. Uh, in Nakritten's picture, it's not just that the modern globe is uh, existentially daunting and that it presents us with a meaningless world. The, the, the meaninglessness, the inscrutability of the modern globe also empowers modern subjects because they are the only source of meaning in this otherwise disenchanted globe. So that's one example of the way in which cultural analysis gets us to think about the ways in which cultural objects speak back to the philosophical or the theoretical approaches that one might seek to impose over them. Um, There's also the issue of uh, context and history that you mentioned. It seems to me, especially in art history, there is this long-standing privileging of one particular context when we're thinking about uh, the meaning of artworks and instances of visual culture. That would be the the context of a work's initial production. I imagine because that's the context in which the author or the creator of a given text um, or artwork um, created their work and thus their intentionality is embedded in the work in that context, as are various social forces which feed into its production. Cultural analysis is premised on the idea that... um, there, there is no essential meaning, no, no deep code, no DNA in a given cultural object, whether that be an artwork or a geographical representation. Every time we encounter it, it re-signifies itself in relation to the viewing subject, the theorist who's thinking about it, the the physical space. I, I would also say there's a there's a kind of geographical dimension to cultural analysis in that. If geography always makes us think about spatial, contextual specificity, cultural analysis similarly always gets us to look at the particular circumstances in which we encounter the object. It's a perspective of encounter. And that actually allows for creativity on the part of the analyst. It's not like there is one single meaning embedded within the work that just awaits the proper interpretation we encounter the artwork in relation to the contemporary context and it's up to us and our critical practice to take that in an interesting direction. So a lot of what I was concerned to do in the book was to put these very different works of map art from very different times and places and put them into dialogue with theories often stemming from geography in ways that I found interesting. Um, so that's how I see cultural analysis feeding into the study.
1: Great. So I think we've given our listeners a pretty good idea of what they're in for if they pick up your book. So uh, to wrap up our interview, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out?
2: Yeah. Um in september i'll be starting a, a new project uh, a four year postdoc funded by the dutch research council which extrapolates from many of my interests in this book in that it's also concerned with visual representations of geography the project will be termed it uh, will be called untimely world pictures and i'll be looking at different visual representations of the earth as a whole from various historical periods, um, particularly in relation to the Anthropocene and contemporary uh, environmental crises. Um, So I'll be looking, for example, at images of the earth from medieval Europe. For example, in the art of Hieronymus Bosch, he, um, on the outer shutters of the Garden of Earthly Delights, uh, imagines the space of the earth almost like a giant Snow globe in which humans are placed within the world rather than living on its surface Um, I'll be looking at representations of the earth from um, early modern uh, colonized um, South America in which the earth is equated with the nature goddess Pachamama So what we see is the earth is a mountain but it's topped by the head and hands of the deity of Pachamama. So there's this kind of gendered apprehension of space and also looking, taking up my analysis of Solomon the in this book um, at socialist uh, visions of the earth, uh, particularly in the work of the radical English artist Walter Crane in the 19th century. So there we have a kind of anti-capitalist idea of the global environment as, as a social commons. And reaching back to that last answer, this will be a a deliberately anachronous analysis. So I will be taking these um, various world pictures out of their initial context and showing how they speak across the centuries and play into contemporary debates around the Anthropocene. Um, So that's what I'll be busy with for the next four years. I do also have a side project, um, which is fast developing into another book manuscript. Um, I'm interested in the emergent discourse of geoengineering. So this is the idea that in response to the climate crisis, scientists and policymakers might actually take control of the Earth's climate, um, primarily by injecting aerosols into the stratosphere um, which would contain heat repellent particles, and that would repel the Earth's sunlight, uh, sorry, the, that would repel solar energy and thus cool the Earth. I'm writing or tentatively writing at this stage uh, a philosophical analysis of those proposals, which would, I think, fundamentally change the character of the global environment in a sense. Um, particularly in relation to the work of Martin Heidegger, you know the great ontologist, and his concept of being in the world and the, uh, the character of the world, um, which I think offers a view onto the ways in which geoengineering would um, encapsulate this transformation of the character of existence in modernity from um, ideas of, of the organic and into a, an artifact of of human design. And I'm trying to look for some of the ways in which uh, a Heideggerian philosophy can point towards some of the contradictions and the complexities of um, of those proposals.
1: All right, well, those both sound like fascinating projects, so we'll keep an eye out for those uh, as you get them published. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for turning it- Yeah, you just heard a conversation with Simon Ferdinand, author of Mapping Beyond Measure, Art, Cartography, and the Space of Global Modernity, published in 2019 by the University of Nebraska Press.